you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, then I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be beginning in verse 38 this morning as we continue our way through the Sermon on the Mount, our series called An Elevated Life. As that Sermon on the Mount begins, we're told Jesus went up on the mountain and He sat down to teach them. He clearly had some things that He needed to share with those He was calling to follow Him. He was inviting them to follow Him and living out this elevated life. Or as He said in Matthew 5.20, He said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus called us to an elevated life. Righteousness. The kingdom of heaven was and is the central proclamation of Jesus' ministry. He was casting a vision of righteousness that went above and beyond that of the religious elite of his day, but not as we see in some rigid or legalistic way. Jesus wasn't calling for harsher judgment or deeper divisions between those that were deemed righteous and those who were labeled as sinners. He wasn't saying, just do what the scribes and Pharisees were doing, just do it even better. It wasn't just adding more laws on top of what already was, but this was instead Jesus digging beneath the laws and the wisdom that already was. For Jesus, the way to an elevated righteousness or life isn't to set yourself up on high as judge, jury, and executioner, or even as the standard of right and wrong, who looks down on those who aren't keeping the rules as good as you are. No, the way to an elevated right life and an elevated righteousness is to make yourself low, to be willing to dig beneath the surface of just keeping the rules to get to the heart of the matter. Not everyone else's heart, but your own heart, my own heart. And so we've been in this pattern in recent weeks where we see Jesus taking this sample from the law or from the religious tradition, and he would take it at face value and then acknowledge its goodness and usefulness. He didn't come to abolish it, he told us, but then he shows his disciples just how easily we can miss the point, how easy it is for us to keep the rules while losing our souls. You can go your whole life without killing anyone while anger burns within you and eats you alive from the inside. You could appear to Stay true to your marriage vows while lust wreaks havoc on your heart and in your relationships. You can swear loudly that what you say is true while the chasm between what you say and who you actually are is too vast even to measure. What Jesus is calling us to is a righteousness that aligns our hearts and our actions to point to the good news of what he is inviting us into, a new kingdom, a new reality where the presence of God offers us peace and justice and joy and dignity to anyone who will receive it. Jesus offers this beautiful and compelling vision of the elevated life, and yet we know it isn't always what people see when they look at us. Why is that? We could probably keep ourselves busy this morning for a while just answering that question, but I think it would include in some way, if we were to answer it, our failure to embody this teaching that we come to this morning in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. Jesus taught this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, this morning, as we open your word together, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would, God, open our hearts now to to receive what you have to show us, what you have to share with us, Lord, that we would respond to this teaching in a way that, um, that honors you, Lord, in a way that um, shows our, our love for you, Lord, but also our love for those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to talk this morning about how to get even. And as we do that, I just ask you as we begin this morning, just in your mind, to think about this question, who is the last person who wronged you or offended you or broke your trust? Who was the last person whose actions or words brought your blood to a boil? Whether you said to yourself or maybe a friend or family member, right, I'll tell you what they need. They need somebody to, to teach them a thing or two, teach them a lesson, and I would like to be the one to do it. And our minds can run rampant. Our imaginations can go wild as we imagine the things that we might say in response to somebody who has wronged us, the things that we might do in order to make things right or at least to get even. Was that for you a friend, a coworker, a family member, a church member, a neighbor, a politician? Who was it that wronged you? And what was that offense that they perpetrated against you? Jesus this morning, shows us a new and better way, I believe, to get even with those who might wrong us. The better news that we see here is that Jesus shows us a different way to get even than the ones our imaginations create within the cycle of outrage and revenge that we find ourselves living in. Jesus points his disciples toward mercy. We've sang about that already a lot this morning. Mercy as the path to peace. And he shows us two important lessons of the elevated life that I just want us to look at together quickly this morning. The first lesson is this, don't retaliate, de-escalate. Pursue reconciliation over retaliation. That is certainly easier said than done. What do we want to do when someone offends us? We want to respond in kind. We want to clap back. We want to take them down, at least verbally. We want to respond as they did to us, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. When someone steals from us, we want to get even. When someone lies their way to get ahead of us, we think maybe it would be good for us to do the same. But Jesus says, quoting words found 
in Leviticus, right? That's what you've heard. It said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He quotes these words from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. These were words that were given in the Old Testament that were intended actually to limit the size and severity of retaliation to the level of the original offense. In the Old Testament, an eye for an eye meant that you didn't respond to a personal insult or accidental injury with all-out destruction. So if someone, someone else's car door dings yours in the parking lot at Kroger, you don't get out and set their car on fire. An eye for an eye was intended to place restraints on our responses to the injuries that we will inevitably incur and the ones that we will inflict in the world as well. But what Jesus knew was what we can also observe in our lives, and that is that these limits were only so effective. In fact, he stops short of quoting the part of the Old Testament teaching that taught that a life for a life was the just response. And he does that, I think, maybe because it might be proportional, but Jesus knows that such violence cannot be contained. What he's inviting us to here is a radical departure from the cycles of vengeance and violence that consumed the world then and consume our world today. As the saying goes, two wrongs don't make a right. In fact, we know that two wrongs usually lead to a third wrong, don't they? And then a fourth, and then a fifth. As we go back and forth, retaliating in kind, trying to get even with those who have wronged us while they are trying to get even with us. In a revenge spiral, there are no winners. Everyone loses, all parties involved and those who get caught up in the crossfire as well. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. That doesn't sound very fair, does it? Do not resist the one who is evil doesn't sound just or right or fair, at least not the way that we often apply it. Modern applications of this teaching from Jesus usually move us toward one of two extremes, either teaching us that this is a call to take whatever evil or abuse or harm comes our way in quiet submission, or teaching that we're somehow justified in ignoring this teaching altogether. The first extreme views these words of Jesus as a call just to be a doormat, taking up no space in the world and putting up with any and every mistreatment that comes our way. Then there's the other extreme that senses the danger in that approach and really abstracts these verses to the point that they mean nothing at all, just ignoring them altogether. And that is how we wind up with the generations of Christians believing that we are at war with the culture, which is just another way for saying we're at war with our neighbors. Neither extreme captures the heart of Jesus' teaching, which we see come to life in these examples that he gives us here in the verses that follow, but he also, we see it coming to life in the words of Paul to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 there in Romans 12, he says this, repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And going down to verse 21 there in Romans 12, he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus isn't teaching that we shouldn't respond to evil or that we aren't to stand up in the face of injustice and harm inflicted upon us or someone else around us. What he's teaching is that if we go down the path, which is a very enticing one of responding to evil with evil, then guess what we'll find is driving our hearts and consuming our lives? Evil. 
You can't fight fire with fire. But the alternative to that isn't to accept every offense and injury and abuse and just pretend it's all okay. The alternative is to bring each situation, bring to each situation a renewed vision of what might be, one that is rooted in hope of justice and reconciliation and restoration instead of the empty promises of retaliation. We all get it, don't we? I mean, retaliation seems like it should work. It promises us this sense of satisfaction and resolution, and maybe it feels like it delivers in the moment, but in the long run, it does not. When someone speaks dishonestly and cruelly about us, the situation doesn't end when we respond in kind. Instead, the divisions are deepened, the relationship is worsened, and the cycle just continues. Maybe you really did have the moral high ground to start with, but once you've gone a few steps down the path of retaliating back and forth, nobody is able to really tell who started it. Your heart will be just as consumed with rage and revenge and evil as those you intend to oppose, and that's why Jesus urges us toward restraint, toward this stubborn refusal to escalate the conflicts we find ourselves in, proposing instead that we pursue reconciliation with a stubborn and persistent creativity. Just look at the four examples he offers us here, and I think they are just that examples that we see him applying for the lives of his hearers at that time. He says in verse 39, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. His first example of what it looks like not to meet evil with evil envisions a slap to the right cheek. And in Jesus' day, as in many cultures today, actually, any contact that someone made with another person would have been made with their right hand because the left was used for unsanitary things. And so a slap to the right cheek would have had to have been one that was a backhanded slap in that day, an obvious affront to the honor of the person who is slapped. And so in turning the other cheek, the assaulted person would have not only been accepting the possibility of further violence or harm, but also, though, would have been asserting a sense of dignity. To deliver the next blow would have required the assailant to deal with their victim as an equal, requiring the assailant to take a moment perhaps to pause and think about what they're doing. It was to disrupt this cycle of honor and shame that the original offense would have brought on. Turning the other cheek asserts dignity and honor. It refuses to be treated as less than an equal, but also refuses to treat the other person as less than. So we go on in verse 40, Jesus says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The Old Testament law allowed a lender to seize the inner garment or tunic from their debtor as payment for what was owed to them. What it did not allow was taking up the outer garment or cloak. That had to be left with the person as their covering from the element, their protection from the cold night. It was like a blanket for the night. And yet Jesus says his disciples should let the one suing them have both garments. And as with turning the other cheek, that would certainly expose the person being sued, both physically and figuratively, but it would also effectively accomplish something else, exposing the heart of the one who was suing them, the one who was suing someone who had nothing left of their name but the clothes on their back. It would expose the greed or the, the lack of compassion there as well. It would disrupt the cycle 
of retaliation. Verse 41 says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, Jesus says, go with him two miles. We love that saying. It's just a kind of a cliche. We're going to go the extra mile as we maybe serve someone or whatever that is. But again, the context here helps us, I think, the Roman soldiers that were occupying the region in Jesus' day, they would have been legally allowed to demand a Jewish person carry their pack for a mile. Put yourself in the position of the one receiving that demand. We can all imagine how little we would enjoy that, but what were the options? What are the options? Conventional wisdom would tell us there are really just two. Either we do as we're told, or we strike back. We fight back against those who oppress us. Jesus' way, though, is a third way. He says, go the extra mile, the second mile of your own accord. This is a kindness and service, certainly, that was not earned or deserved, but one that would turn the dynamics of the situation on their head, would offer perhaps even an opportunity to engage with that soldier who was making these demands. And then final example we see Jesus giving in verse 42. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In Jesus' fourth and final example here, the roles are actually reversed. As the hearer, we're placed not in the position of the one who's offended or oppressed, but as the one who's hearing the cries of one who is in need. Jesus doesn't give us here the story of friends who help each other out in turn. This is the story of a beggar who has nothing to bargain with. There's little likelihood here of repayment. And so the generosity Jesus proposes isn't explained by an eye for an eye because there's nothing that's going to come back in return. It's a surprising demonstration of mercy. And as this message was taking shape this morning, we were preparing to think about this idea of, of mercy as Jesus lays it out for us. Uh, Brother Shane shared this definition of mercy with me that I thought was maybe helpful for us as we think through it this morning. He said, mercy is making every effort to respond to and care for your neighbor. Making every effort to respond to and care for your neighbor. neighbor. And we see that in each of these examples that Jesus provides us with. There's this element of surprise. The response Jesus proposes can't be explained by an eye for an eye. It isn't explained by what each person deserves. Each of these situations represents a stubborn refusal to engage with evil on its own terms. Instead, Jesus models this moral imagination that we prefer not to practice. We want the rules to work out like a math problem, at least if you're like me, where there's one right answer and one wrong answer. Just tell me what to do. I'll go and do it. But We all know that life is rarely that simple. And when we find ourselves being hurt or harmed or disadvantaged by the actions of others, the path forward can be hard to discern when we're in the middle of the situation. It's much easier at that point to strike back. It requires no restraint. It demands no imagination. But that isn't the way Jesus calls us to. His way is another way that invites us to look for ways to de-escalate the situation and move toward resolution or reconciliation. So when someone gossips about you, maybe the way of Jesus is to take a breath and calmly confront them instead of trying to get back at them by spreading rumors or gossip about them. When we're faced with a bigger or more systemic injustice, we can perhaps look to movements in history where peaceful 
resistance, was able to raise awareness and achieve results in places like the civil rights movement of the 1960s. We see this, though, in Jesus' teaching here. Don't re retaliate, de-escalate. Pursue reconciliation over retaliation. And applying that teaching, it's not easy, right? it's not clear-cut, but it's what Jesus invites us to do. The second lesson we see there is, is this as we move on. It's don't hate Love and pray, choose mercy over malice. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, where is that in the Old Testament? The loving your neighbor part is there. The part about hating your enemies, though, you're going to have a hard time finding. But Jesus is showing us here what our hearts are like. He's getting to the heart of his hearers, and in that way we can all follow his thinking, I think. We know what happens when we start trying to identify those who are our neighbors and those who are not our neighbors. Our tendency is to try to clearly define an us and to them, and when that's our mindset, us and them quickly becomes us versus them, where neighbors deserve love and enemies deserve hate, or at the very least, just a cold indifference. And Jesus, though, again, suggests an alternative here. He says, instead, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And do it towards this outcome so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Is Jesus saying that you have to live up to a certain level of loving your enemies in order to be considered a child of God? I don't think that's what he's teaching here. I think what he's saying here is a lot like what Paul was writing to the Ephesians at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, and going into Ephesians 5, he said this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children." And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There should be a family resemblance between God and those of us who are his children. So though it might seem fair to hate those who persecute you, Jesus calls us to love and pray for them instead because this is how God treats those that are around us in the world. The sun rises on the evil and on the good, Jesus says. God provides for all people. Life-sustaining rain comes to the just and the unjust. He shows mercy to all. And so will those of us who follow Jesus join him in what we see God doing. Loving those who love you, Jesus says, that is easy. What reward does that deserve? And notice what Jesus does there. He begins bringing up those his hearers would have most likely put in the them column, in the us versus them chart. He says, say you love those who love you. Isn't that what the tax collectors do? Say you greet only your brothers, your family and close friends. Isn't that what the Gentiles do? Again, Jesus is helping his hearers to see that they weren't so different from those they called, thought were their enemies. So, 
so many of the walls we erect are artificial, arbitrary. And we, when we allow these divisions to shape our thinking, we become unable to see the reality that God is making the sun rise on all, sending rain upon all, that God has created each of us in His image with dignity, that we aren't as different from those we perceive to be our enemies as we might like to think. But if we do what we've always done, we'll keep getting what we've always gotten. And so Jesus invites us here to see the world differently, to treat one another differently, to love those who would identify as our neighbors and those who might call themselves our enemies, not just in a sentimental or token way, but with action and intention. He says, don't hate, but love and pray. He teaches us the way to get even in the kingdom of heaven, and it begins with us seeing how the image of God in every person evens the playing field of every interaction. At the end of the day, we can't control whether or not someone else labels us as an enemy or a neighbor. But we can choose how we'll respond in the face of persecution or opposition, whether we will choose malice or we'll choose mercy. We can choose whether we'll interact with empathy and compassion or envy and rivalry. I'll just assure you of this this morning. If you're looking for an enemy as you go through life, you're not going to have any trouble finding one. If you want to find an enemy, right, you can just turn on the news. They'll gladly tell you who you should hate. But if we went out into the world Instead, what if we went out of the world looking for neighbors, looking for those that we might show mercy and love? Jesus' lessons here, I think they're pretty straightforward, but they're hard ones for us to learn, aren't they? They require an imagination that sees beyond the way things always have been, the way that they are that we can see them in the world around us, to see the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is inviting us to live with hope and expectation for that coming kingdom, to pursue reconciliation over retaliation and to choose mercy over malice. None of us are going to make those choices perfectly 100% of the time, but whether it's at home, at church, at work, in our community, in politics, we have no shortage of opportunities to work on putting these things into practice. We're going to stumble, but in faith and hope and love, we can move forward with mercy in a world where Jesus tells us to expect trouble and to count on opposition. To choose mercy isn't to forfeit justice or fairness. It's to trust that God's way is better than mine, that His timing is better than mine. And so, yes, an impulsive remark delivered with biting sarcasm, might feel good, rolling off the tongue, but it doesn't lead anywhere I want to go. And dividing the world into two groups, us and them, or neighbors and enemies, yes, it feels easier to control and predict, but it undermines the peace that it promises to deliver. If we define someone else as our enemy, marking them for destruction, it's impossible for us to live at peace. And so Jesus says we need an elevated life, one that embodies the lessons he's been teaching here in Matthew 5, 
in this chapter that concludes with this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Sums it up, doesn't it? Just be perfect, right? Isn't that what you all have been doing? It's pretty simple, straightforward. What does Jesus mean by that verse, though? He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't think he put it there just for comic relief. As is almost always the case in any reading, I think we can take our cue from the context. What would it mean for us to be perfect or complete or mature as our heavenly Father is? Here in the context, I think it means us treating all people with mercy, just as our God shows mercy to all. And I say that in part because as Luke records a similar section of teaching from Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus' instruction there is this, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. For the perfectionists in the room, if you want to be perfect, be merciful. It's the only way for us to really get even in this life. What Jesus is teaching us here isn't all that different from what he was teaching the lawyer in Luke chapter 10. There a lawyer came to Jesus and he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus kind of turned the question back on him. He rightly answered the question there saying, love God, love your neighbor. But when Jesus told him, okay, yeah, that's right, go and do that, what did the lawyer do, he had another question for Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Which is essentially the same question Jesus is answering here in Matthew 5. Who is in? Who is out? And to that lawyer, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Told a story about a man who was robbed and beaten and left for dead by the side of the road. And a priest came by, passed by, on the other side went about on his journey. A Levite came by, passed by, went about his way. Finally, a Samaritan came by and offered help to this man. A Samaritan, another person who Jesus' hearers would have instinctively placed on the them side of the ledger. Having told this story, Jesus questioned to the lawyer then was this in Luke 10, 36. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The man answered and Jesus confirmed. It was the one that showed him mercy. The lawyer wanted to know who his neighbor was. He wanted to label everyone and then act accordingly. He wanted to know who was in and who was out. But Jesus proposed a different question. To whom will you be a neighbor? To whom will you show mercy? And in the same way this morning, I think Jesus' teaching prompts us to go beyond simply asking who our enemies are. That's an easy one for us to answer. We're really good at categorizing people, good and evil, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, us, them. But if we're going to love both our neighbors and our enemies, do we really need 
those categories. I believe the question Jesus has been asking me as I've worked through this passage this week, maybe he's asking it of you this morning, is this, to whom are you an enemy? How would those who know me best answer that question? Toward whom do I react with disgust and hatred rather than with mercy and love? Again, the call here isn't to accept abuse and harm without any response. But where are we the ones who are returning evil for evil, arguing that the ends justify the means? We are right, after all. Where are we the ones perpetuating division and hatred instead of taking the first step in love toward those conventional wisdom says we should oppose? Where are we being overcome by evil instead of overcoming evil with good? This morning, every preaching class I ever had said that it should always be clear what you as the hearer of a sermon should do when the sermon is over. Application is supposed to be extremely practical. And if you don't feel like we've arrived there this morning, then I tell you you're not alone. But if you are still with me this morning, I think here's where we have come to, hopefully to a place where we can sit and wrestle with the hard questions about how we respond to evil in our world without being overcome by it. Because I think as we see here in this passage, Jesus gives us these examples, not so that we can go back and work through some formula to be more merciful and loving in every situation, but giving us these examples to jumpstart our imaginations on what it might look like for us in our lives if we weren't looking for enemies, but instead we're looking for neighbors. If we weren't looking to retaliate, but instead we're looking to reconcile and restore and make things better. What it look, would look like if we chose mercy instead of choosing malice. Heavenly Father, this morning as we move into a time of response to your word, God. We pray that you would help us by your spirit to take this teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. God, help us to take it and to apply it in our lives, Lord, as those who have, have a desire to, to follow you, God, a desire to follow Jesus. God, help us to see where our hearts are Lord, falling short of, of this call that you've given us to, um, God, to not be overcome by evil, this call not to uh, retaliate in, in kind, but instead to look toward reconciliation. God, help us to see where, where we choose malice instead of mercy where, God, we might see more clearly the, the grace that you've poured out upon us, God, that we might see the mercy that you have shown to us, and that we might join you responding to your mercy by extending that mercy and grace to others. God, may we be, God, a a light in this dark world 
May we be a, God, a testimony of what it might look like for people to radically apply the teachings that we find here in this sermon, Lord. What it looks like for us to live an elevated life, Lord. May these words that we see and hear from Jesus this morning, Lord, may they work their way into our hearts and then out into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.